chapter one, um, verse one, until chapter two, verse four. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 715. Isaiah chapter one, verse one, until ch chapter two, verse four. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot, to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or sued with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burnt with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste and wet and as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of, hear the, word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our Lord, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festival, and your appointed feasts my, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. 
They all of bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, uh, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will terribly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will re restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes from many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. We'll do a bit of um, gazing along, so keep the Bibles open there. And also there is an outline of this talk, so you might find it helpful. There's also a full transcript for those of you who need it. Um, now, we, we are starting Isaiah. We won't be going through the whole 66 chapters of Isaiah. That's a bit daunting. I found this daunting, even just looking at this first chapter. Um, we'll be doing it in small chunks. So over the next five or so weeks, we'll just be looking at the first part of Isaiah. Um, so it's a big, daunting book, but we do need God's help. So let's uh, come to God again in prayer and ask that he might help us understand this. Let's, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak your word to us. You have spoken in the past and you speak today uh, through your word. And so we pray that as we come to this passage of Isaiah, that you might teach us what we need to learn, convict our hearts in the way we should go. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this series uh, with some questions, and they are these. How do you think we are, as Christians, as a church, are going? How do you think we are going in all aspects of our lives, in every corner of our life, in every room of our lives? How are we going as Christians? Do you think in all aspects of our lives, it is all pleasing to God? What do you think? We should be assessing ourselves once in a while. You see, it's actually quite hard to do a self-assessment because we live in this small Christian subculture of society. Not just any Christian, but this small subculture of society. And that is not just eastern suburbs, uh, middle class folks, 
not just evangelicals, not just Reformed people, but also Presbyterian. That comes with a unique culture where some of us might go to church twice a week. Many of us are part of growth groups throughout the week. Many of us serve in all sorts of ways. Music, the, the desk back there in our kids' ministry, youth growth groups ministry. And so for us to assess ourselves is in fact quite hard because we can just look at each other. We can look at each other each week and we can just think, we're actually doing pretty good. Just look at each other, look at ourselves. Surely God must be pleased and happy with us. It's very easy to just look at our own culture because we live in it and to think we're doing well. We're doing a good job. In fact, it's very hard if we're living in this culture to to see our own flaws, to see our own faults, to find our own blind spots. You see, if we're in the culture, it's very hard to assess our own culture. And so what we always need, and this is what we need to do often, and that is what we need is someone outside our culture to speak into our culture. And that was the exact job of the prophets. That was their job. Their job was to speak the mind and will of God to his people back then and even today as we read it today. And as we read this, it is meant to expose the deepest recesses of our hearts that we just don't see because it's hidden. We, we don't see. We look at each other and it looks pretty good. Or, or uh, what we read here, it's meant to rebuke us in areas of our lives that we just turn a blind eye to. Or it is to challenge us in our complacent faith. Or it is also to give us the hope of the glory of God. And so as we begin this series on Isaiah, we are to remember that this is not just reading an ancient document to some people far away a long time ago. We are to read this and to understand that this is how God speaks to us today. He is speaking into our little culture. And so what do you think God has to say to us then? What do you think God has to say to us Eastern Suburbs Reformed Evangelical Christians. Well, what we'll hear will be a bit like heart surgery. God's going to expose things. It will be uncomfortable, but ultimately it will be for our good. Now, the book of Isaiah. What do we know about the book of Isaiah? It is a huge book, and I suspect many of us thinking about Isaiah, even as I thought about Isaiah, it's daunting, it's a bit frightening. Such a big book and it's poetic language. I mean, for an engineer to try to understand poetry, it's like you guys trying to understand rocket science. But you see, it's hard, it's hard to digest. But it is a magnificent book. Isaiah is seen and often called the gospel of the Old Testament. Without Isaiah, it's very hard for us to make sense of what Jesus did. Isaiah is like the gospel of the Old Testament. It's a magnificent book. And so what do we know about Isaiah? Well, when we look at an Old Testament book, an Old Testament text, we, it, it's always good to understand it in its historical context. And so that's what we'll do now. I've got my nine volunteers, if you can quickly come up. So just stand over here in a line around there somewhere. I've got my nine volunteers. Now, this is to give you a quick overview of where Isaiah, when Isaiah came. Where's Abraham? Abraham's over here. Abraham was about 2000 BC, which means about 4,000 years ago. He's the guy that God made the promise to, big promises to this guy. Promises to bless not just his descendants, 
but the entire world. And then Moses, little Moses, you're probably still a baby, Moses. Moses came about 1500 BC, so that's about three and a half thousand years ago. Now, we know about the story of Moses, the prince of Egypt, that little cartoon thing. So Moses was the one um, during the time when the people, the descendants of Abraham, first became a nation. God saved them, took them out of slavery from Egypt. And then a few hundred years later, we come across this guy, the greatest king to rule over Israel, unified the kingdoms, and he was the greatest king, a powerful king and an honored king, King David, one of the great ones. He, he was very wealthy, raised a lot of money, so that the son of David, Solomon, about 970 BC, Solomon was the one who built the temple. Uh, uh, he was very impressive, the wisest person to ever lived. He started off really well, but then he went bad. Remember that? How did he go bad? It, were, it was the ladies, too many of them. He married, what is it, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And what happened? Though he started off so well, he ended up a terrible mess. Followed the idols of his wives, his many wives. Now, as punishment, what did God do? Well, as punishment, during the reign of his son, God split the kingdom. So there was the northern kingdom, Israel. They were known as Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah. And God split the kingdom in 922 BC. So what you're seeing is there are real dates. This is all historical. The kingdom was now split in two. You've got the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and the two tribes in the south. Okay, The big one up the top, the smaller one down the bottom. And it was split. Now we've got in 722 BC. Penny, if you can come up here. This is the ruthless Assyrian. Here you go. The ruthless Assyrian, they were the superpower. And about 722, you come along and you destroy this guy. Strangle him, whatever you want to do. So Assyria pretty much kills off the northern kingdom and they became no more in 722 BC. Okay, we got that? Now what happened to the south? Well, here's the Babylonians. Now, Babylon became the next superpower who defeated the Assyrians. And now you come and hold his hand and take him away. You take him off into exile. So Babylon takes Judah into exile in 597 BC. Okay, so we got that. That's big picture of the Old Testament. Now we need an, an Isaiah. So Ian, you can be an Isaiah. You can be our Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet who came about this time. So if you move, shuffle over. Lucy, if you shuffle over this way. You came about here, before the Assyrian conquest. Okay, so Isaiah came at a time before the north was destroyed and before the south was exiled. And he came at that time to speak about those two big events in their history. Okay, we all got that? Take a photo if you like. Okay, thank you, volunteers. So Isaiah came before the north was destroyed, before the south was exiled, and he came to warn about those coming judgments. Very important time, very important prophet. And so now we come to chapter 1, verse 1. So have your Bibles open. Verse 1. 
The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so what that already tells us is that his ministry spanned those four kings. His ministry was for about 60 years, though his writings were about things that were to happen several hundred years later. And so what was that vision about? What did God have to say to the people of Judah? Remember, that is the southern kingdom. Well, in our reading, we can see that it wasn't good news at all. It was, in fact, terrible news. Chapter 1 is pretty much a damning indictment on the people of God. You see, it's not God telling off the nations of the world. You are all terrible idol worshippers. It is God speaking to his own people and telling them how bad they are. But you see, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. They were living in that culture. They couldn't see their own faults. In fact, during the reign of Uzziah, he was a king who reigned for 52 years. That's a long time. And during his time, he brought a lot of wealth and stability into the kingdom. The nation became wealthy and prosperous. Uzziah, he extended Judah's border. He was a successful king. He had control of the Red Sea port, which meant commerce. And so they became very wealthy. And so the people were thinking, this is pretty good. God likes us. Things are going well. He even fought and defeated the Philistines, the Arabs, and the Ammonites. So this was a king who was very successful. He fortified Jerusalem. And so, so they thought, we're well protected. And he also maintained a standing army. And so life in the city for the people of God, in their eyes, was in fact pretty good. It's really good. It's a bit like us today in our culture. Life here, in not just in this area, but in Melbourne, life is pretty good. But because they were in that culture, in that city, they could not see how bad things really were. And so what did God think about how they were going? Well, it was not good news at all. God says, you are ungrateful, wicked children. This is God speaking to his own people. And God calls upon heaven and earth. The whole world, look at this. Be my witnesses. Look at what my own people are doing. My own covenant people. Look at how they are treating me. And so have a look at verses 2 and 3. God calls heaven and earth. Hear, O heavens. Listen, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I read children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, can you imagine that indictment? God is speaking to his own people, whom he treats as his own children. And he's saying to them, to his own children, you are worse than the beasts of the field. They know their master, the donkeys and the ox. They know their master and they're just animals. How can you not know my own people, my own children? How do you not know that I'm the one who gave you life? How do you not know that I'm the one who provided for you, who, who, who saved you from Egypt? Now just imagine those words and think about that. How heartbreaking that would have been for God. How heartbreaking for a parent to feel such a thing. Now, many of you would know that I, in fact, came to Australia as a refugee. I arrived in 
1980 as a one-year-old child. My parents left Vietnam, escaped Vietnam as boat people. They literally escaped. Last year, we in fact went back to the to the coast where they left on that boat. And I remember looking over the cliff with my mother next to me, she, hearing the waves. She, she said, I still feel queasy each time I hear the waves because they were out at sea for a long time. During that time when a lot of people fled Vietnam, about 1.2 million people fled, cramped in these little boats like sardines. And up to about a third of them died at sea. So about 400,000 died at sea. Those who did survive, many of them had to face these pirates who, who came and stole their wealth and abused many. And so reflecting on this, my parents, they went through a lot. I mean, I didn't know anything. When they were on the boat, I was, I was still in my mum's uh, tummy. And it was in Indonesia, in a refugee camp that I was born. My mum told me she almost died giving birth. You know, the, the facilities weren't great there. And so upon reflecting on what my parents did, they suffered a whole lot. Coming to Melbourne, starting a new life, so that we would have a better life than them. Came with nothing. They worked really hard, put us three uh, brothers through school, through university, that we might have a better life than them. Now, I don't know about that. We all became ministers, so I'm not sure how good that is. <laughs> but let, let, let's just say, upon reflecting how good our, uh, my parents have been towards uh, me and our, my brothers... If I were then to completely ignore them, each time I see them call me on the phone, I'll just click cancel. I don't want to talk to them. Just imagine if I were to do that. Imagine if I don't, I don't visit them, don't show up at their birthdays, don't show any appreciation on Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas. Uh, and imagine if I am ashamed of my parents after all they've done for me. Now, of course, that's not true. I love my parents. But if that were so, how do you think they would feel? How would any parent feel if their child treated them that way? Well, you see, if we get a sense of how bad that is, that's, that's a wicked child. I mean, if you feel the pain and hurt that would be, then you can start to imagine the pain and hurt God had over his people, his wicked children who rebelled against him who turned their backs against God, the one who gave them life, and started to live totally opposite lives to what they were called. Have a look at verse 4 now. A sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. And even as they were being punished... Listen to what Isaiah says. They don't learn their lesson. Verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? You see, they're being punished now, but they're not learning their lesson. It's a bit like a boxer who's already down and out, but he's asking to be beaten more, asking for more pain. It's just ludicrous. And so the allusion here is to the nation. They're already under judgment. They're being punished by God. Verse 7. Your, your country is desolate, we read. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. And in verse 8, a city under siege. They were being punished, but they could not see it. They thought life was okay. They were being punished. Now, that was perhaps an allusion to what happened in 701 BC. After the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, 
they, became, they came very close and almost destroyed Jerusalem. They laid Jerusalem under siege. Almost destroyed, but it didn't happen. But here, firstly, we see what God thinks about them. God's assessment of them. You wicked children. But that's not all. These people, they were in fact very religious. The people of God were very religious. They went to the temple. They performed their sacrifices. They did their religious duties. They seemed like good spiritual people. But what did God think? Well, God thought their religion is empty, void of any genuine love for God. And here we see God continues to be damning towards them. He compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know Sodom and Gomorrah were two wicked cities destroyed completely by God. But now listen to God's disgust at their religious efforts. Look at verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Verse 12. You're trampling my courts. That is, you're making my area dirty. Verse 13. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest is detestable to me. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. I mean, God is disgusted when they get together for worship. God is disgusted by their church services. Verse 14, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. You have be, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. I mean, just imagine if that was what God were to say about how we celebrate Easter and Christmas, all empty and fake. Verse 15, their prayers, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. I will not listen. And why? Your hands are full of blood. You are guilty through and through. You've got bloody hands. It's a bit like that image in the book Macbeth, that play. Lady Macbeth, when her hands were all, all guilty of her murder, she said, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. You can't get rid of your shame and your guilt. And so here, the people of God, this is not, not the other nations. This is the people who hurt the law, who knows God, and God is speaking to them. They had all the appearance of being religious, living spiritual lives, but their hearts were empty, void of any love for God and others. They didn't care about the vulnerable, did not defend the fatherless, did not plead the case for the widows, verse 17. And so here we see the damning indictment on the people of God. Not just wicked children, but all empty, hypocritical religion. But that's not all. God continues. They've turned a once faithful city, the city of God, to now an adulterous city. Sin city has become a city that would metaphorically prostitute itself to any and every god. It's the image of where God is the groom, but yet to find his bride on the wedding night with another man. That was what Israel was doing, prostituting itself with other gods. And we see verse 21, they're murderers. Verse 23, they're rebels, thieves, corrupt, heartless. Verse 29, they even practice the religious rites of the foreigners. They practice fertility rites. That's the thing with the trees and the gardens. So what will God do with them? I mean, this is his own people. He loves them dearly. He made a covenant with them. What will God do? 
or here we read, they will be destroyed. Verse 31, the mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together and no one to quench the fire. It's disappointing, isn't it? This is the very people of God, the people given the laws of God, the people who were, were given these wonderful kings sent by God and prophets and priests. Though they had the appearance of faithfulness, they were wicked and evil. In fact, one of the kings, Ahaz, a king of Judah, he became as evil as the nations God had driven out. He did even the detestable thing of sacrificing one of his sons to the fire, just like those foreign religion. And you think about that, how can this happen to the people of God? How sick and heinous is that? And so here God's extremely damning upon his own people. Wicked children engaging in empty religion and becoming this adulterous city. And so what do you think God would do? What do you think God should do? Well, if things are that bad, you, you just think, maybe God, you should just send another flood like what you did during the time of Noah. Or send another ten plagues like what you did in Egypt. Why bother with these people any longer? But what God did do was that he eventually did punish them. He did send judgment. Like what we saw before, the northern kingdom were destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon. But yet in that judgment, as we were reading through, I wonder if you've noticed, if you picked up, there were glimpses of hope scattered throughout that chapter. There were glimpses of hope. Do you notice that in the text? You see, God said, you're wicked children. There's no excuse. But do you notice what God said in verse 9? Have a look at that now. Verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what does that say? Well, that says that God could have destroyed them like Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserve to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. But yet God acted in mercy. We saw a little glimpse there in verse 9. God acted in mercy and did not give them what they deserved. God left some survivors. There's this glimmer of hope. And there's more scattered throughout. Though their spiritual life was just empty religion, it's all fake, all show. But do you notice verse 18, what God promises there? Look at God's offer, God's appeal, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, do you know what that is saying? Though there's blood on their hands and no amount of soap can wash away that guilty conscience and that shameful past, God offers them here, this promise of grace, that they will get what they don't deserve, that they will be cleansed and renewed, that their past life, their regrets, their guilts, their shame, their sins completely and absolutely wiped clean so that their conscience no longer nags them or condemns them or torments them. They will be as white as snow. That's a wonderful Wonderful promise of grace. God promises to act graciously, to give them what they don't deserve. And so there we see another glimmer of hope. 
there's mercy, and now there's grace. But yet there's more. They've become this adulterous city, one that deserves to be completely destroyed, sleeping around with any and every god. But then do you notice verse 27? Look at that. Zion, that is Jerusalem, will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. Now, what do you think that is saying? Well, what it is saying is that this adulterous city will be redeemed, that in judgment it will be purified, it will be refined, and one day it will once again become the city of righteousness, the faithful city, the city of God. And so here we see this other glimmer of hope. There's mercy, there's grace, and there's redemption scattered in God's big judgment on them. And so what we see here in chapter 1 is that it's not all doom and gloom. Embedded within this are these wonderful glimpses of hope. And so in each of these indictments, there is that message of hope. Though they were wicked children, God will act in mercy. Though their religion was empty, God will act in grace. And though their city was adulterous, God will act in redemption. It is the wonderful message of the Bible. We see in the new, we see in the old. And in the end, what do we see in chapter 2? We finally get this wonderful picture, this glorious future that God has in store. The, The future not only for those in Isaiah's days, but a future even for us today. And it is a glorious picture. You see here, in chapter 2, the city of God will be established forever. Isaiah looked forward to that city. Verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. And chief among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And so this will be the city of God, greater than anything seen. And it will be for the world, embracing all nations, not just Judah. And and we go on and we see it will be a place where peace will reign forever. Look at verse 4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but... Those lines were used in Michael Jackson's song, Heal the World. Or am I from a different generation? You don't know who Michael Jackson is? But anyway, he got that from here. But you see, the peace that the whole world longs for, the peace that we want people to stop shooting, terrorists to stop bombing, nations to stop fighting, that's not going to happen in this lifetime. But the promise is that it will in the glorious city of God. The end will be glorious, and some will enjoy it. Those who are penitent, those who turn to God in repentance. And so that's chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 of Isaiah. It's a big one, but it is really here to set up as an overview of what we'll see in the rest of Isaiah. It speaks of God's assessment, not to the world, but to his very own people. And it speaks of what is to come. But what does it speak to us today? 2017 Surrey Hills. Now, Isaiah wrote about Judah, not about us. Isaiah wrote about 2,700 years ago. That's not now. 
And Isaiah wrote in another place, that's not here. So how are we meant to understand Isaiah for us today? Well, the way we are to understand all of Scripture in the past, in the Old Testament even, even though it was not written about us, it was nonetheless written for us. It is for our benefit. You see, the things that offended God and broke God's heart back then, they have not changed. They are the very same things that offend God and breaks God's heart today. That does not change. How Israel, how Judah hurt God back then, that's how people continue to hurt God today. And so we can hurt God today just as much as they did. We can hurt God just as much as they did. And so we can never think we're not as bad as them. We're not as sinful as them. We are much better than them. We can never think that way. And in Isaiah, God was speaking into a culture, the culture of his own people. They were blinded. They couldn't see the evil they were doing, but God exposed it. And in a sense, what we're doing here is that Isaiah is doing the same thing to us. God speaks into our small sub-Christian culture. What are we to do? Who are they? Who are these people of God? Well, it is us. In the Old Testament, the covenant people of God were the Israelites. In the New Testament, it is us, the church, the people of God. And so what God speaks about through Isaiah back then, he speaks to us today as the people of God. And just like how God exposed their faults and flaws and evils, that's what it is doing to us today. And so this is where the heart surgery begins. And so we must reflect on this for a moment. You see, if we are the people of God today, just as they were back then, if we reflect on our lives, if we look deep into our hearts, what does it reveal? Does it reveal that our lives today are just like theirs back then? Not saying that it is, but if it is, what do you think God will say to us today? Well, he'll say the very same thing. He'll say the very same thing to what he said back then. I have reared you and brought you up as my child, but you have rebelled against me, you wicked children. I mean, the ox knows its master. But you Christians, if you live that way, you live as though you belong to another. I mean, you pour out your life and your heart into your work, if that's true. But I don't see anything like that when it comes to eternal things. If you pour out your life and heart when it comes to things like comfort and security and finances, but I don't see anything near that effort when it comes to the kingdom of God, then what are you like? You're like that ox who does, who know, who does not know the master. Or if you spend all your time and energy and effort really just on yourself with, without any commitment and concern to the commission that we're given the reality that so many are facing eternity in hell, but yet we're worried about petty things. I mean, what will God say to us today if that were true? And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we the people of God, the children of God? Is God still our Father, our Lord, our King over all things? Not just the things that are convenient, not just part of our house, but every room, every aspect of our lives. Because if it's not, 
Then we've done the same thing as they did back then and turned our backs on God. Every aspect must be under the lordship of God. Or what about our spiritual lives? God was depressed, angry about their religious efforts, which was all empty. What about ours? Is it just like those back then? Because if it is, what do you think God would say? Well, God would say, your religion is all empty. Your church services, they're detestable and become a burden to me. Now, of course, that's not our aim in running our church services. Our aim is always for the intention of honouring and glorifying God and fellowship building. But though that might be how it looks and appears, if we see church as just like going through the motions... When we sing, oh, we have to stand up now and we sing and we're just more concerned about what people will think of us when we sing. Or when we pray, we're just going through the motions and instead of praying, we're praying to the God of the universe, but I'm thinking about what I'm having for dinner tonight. Do you think God does not see that? Or when we read the Bible and I'm instead checking on Facebook or Snapchat, whatever that is, I don't even know what that is. Do you think God will not see that? Or when someone up here is preaching or speaking and we fall asleep, do you think God does not care? You see, if in our Christian gatherings we set it up the way it is to honour God, but if personally our ears are never listening, our minds are never conforming to the truth, our hearts are never being convicted, our hearts are never repenting and our lives are never changing, there's no heart in it at all. No conviction in it at all. No faith, no love. And what happens on Sundays makes no difference on Mondays and we just blend into the rest of the world. What do you think God would say? Or what God would think of that? That would be just a bit like what they did back then. You see, coming to church might make us look like Christians. But if there's no genuine sincerity in all that we do together, if there's no vitality in our gatherings, if there's no real faith in Christ, it's just a shell, no substance, then we've become just like them back then. Empty, hypocritical religion. And I would hate to think what God would say to us if that were true. And so you see how the words of Isaiah speaking to the people of God back then continues to speak to us today. But of course, that wasn't all that Isaiah spoke of. He spoke of the coming judgment. He spoke of the coming judgment, and we know that it came. The northern kingdom destroyed, the southern kingdom exiled. But the judgment that he was speaking of was really only a shadow of the greater judgment for all people, for all people who turned their backs on God, and it is far worse. It is looking forward to a greater judgment that is eternal, where you will remain guilty forever, in pain forever, in distress forever, suffering forever, in torment forever. These are eternal things. The judgment is far worse. It is literally hell. I mean, after working a few years here, I've conducted a few funerals, and it's always sad because someone has, has ended their life here on earth. But if you actually understand the greater judgment of God, that Isaiah's judgment foreshadows, it actually should make our funerals far more unbearable because there is something worse than death for those who continue to turn their backs on God. 
there is a greater judgment that this judgment in this book looks forward to. But yet there's also a greater promise. Now do you see the, the glimpses of hope? Remember those scattered throughout this chapter? The hope of mercy, the hope of grace, the hope of redemption. That God in mercy would withhold his righteous judgment. That God in grace would freely offer salvation. That God in love would bring about glorious redemption. That somehow sinful people, undeserving people, will be brought back into the right loving relationship with God as Father. How is that possible? Isaiah gave us glimpses of that. How was that fulfilled? How did God bring that to be fulfilled? We see for Isaiah and those in his times, they were waiting and they waited and waited and waited. They waited a long time for when God would do that. When God would turn sins like scarlet into something as white as snow. And as we read through Isaiah, we get more glimpses of that. We get more hints of that. When we get to chapter 7, we read of this one born of a virgin, Emmanuel. When we get to chapter 9, we read of this one who will bring it about. One court, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. When we get to 52, we read of this suffering servant. When we read to 53, we hear of one who is led like a lamb to the slaughter. When we get to 53, later on, we hear of, of the one who will be crushed for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities. When we get to chapter 61, we'll read of the one anointed by God who will preach good news to the poor. So who was it that Isaiah was longing for, waiting for this glimpse of hope he shared with us? He was waiting for it and they were waiting for it. How was that to happen? Where there'll be mercy, grace and redemption? Well, that was future to them. But that's in the past for us now. After Christ, on this side of the cross, we can look back. It was in the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, when he came, who preached good news to the poor, who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, who was pierced and crushed, who is the Prince of Peace. When faith is in him, we are made as white as snow. That is redemption there. And so the great hope of the people of God, though they knew they were bad, the great hope was looking forward to the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And the great hope for us now, however our church is, we need to cling on to the one who has already come. We look back to Jesus. That is the reason why when we gather as a church, we gather because he's our saviour. He brings us together, who saves us from the greater judgment that that Isaiah shadowed, and he brings us into the greater and better and eternal Jerusalem, the city of God, the place Isaiah longed for, and the place that we who belong to Christ belongs to. And so that's what it meant for being a Christian, in being a Christian. That's what it means. And so it's very easy for us in our culture nice Christians in this place. Very easy to go on as things are okay and not see our blind spots and our faults and flaws where life is good. But we must not live as though judgment will not come. 
And we must not live as though we can abuse the mercy and grace of God. And just like in our first reading, the Apostle Peter, he put this so, so starkly. He said in chapter 3, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And so for us now, we see clearly. For them, they were looking forward. For us, we have seen clearly. God has shown mercy, grace, and redemption. And so what does that mean? Well, we make sure we live like children of God, with genuine, spiritual, wholehearted religion, as faithful people longing for the city of God. That is how we're to live, and that's how we are to assess ourselves. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that in your great mercy and grace and the redemption you brought about in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can be your children that we can have a future where our lives belong to the city of God. And so we pray that you might help us to always live holy and godly lives, consistent to what is true and good, and help us to long always, long for the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.